San Diego's talk radio leader, 760 KFMB presents It's Your Money and Your Life. For the next hour, Richard Musio and Joe Vecchio will educate and inform you on matters related to your financial future, your life, and your leisure. Now, with It's Your Money and Your Life, here are Richard and Joe. All right, and I am Joe Vecchio, your co-host, announcer, and producer, coming to you from KFMB Studios with 50,000 watts of power. We're heard not just in San Diego County, but Orange County, L.A. County, up the coast of Seattle on a good night, down to Cabo, out to the desert. If you download the app for 760 KFMB or tune in radio, you can hear this on any device as it airs. And, of course, all these podcasts are commercial-free on IYMoney.com. Now time to introduce the main man of the hour. He's a CPA extraordinaire, an accomplished marathon runner, a best-selling author, a lecturer, a philanthropist and a family office expert advising several high net worth families. His name is Richard Musio. Richard, good evening. How are you tonight? I'm marvelous, Joe. It's good to be here. Absolutely. Right Absolutely. before the holiday. Absolutely. Hey, we have way too important of a guest today, uh, VIP. Uh, so let's get right into it. This gentleman, uh, I guess, began his career as an astrophysicist and he got into scientific computing and supercomputer applications. Uh, he is the founder of Cal IT2 which is over at UCSD, and, uh, the, and what does that stand for, Larry, again, for everybody? That's the Great Davis Institute for Science and Innovation. It's the California Institute for Telecommunications and Information Technology. There you go. That's where they get the two, Telecommunications and Information Technology. It was founded here in San Diego by our guest, uh, Larry Smarr, in 2000. Larry, welcome to the show. Thanks. Wow, what a resume. <laughs> I don't know where to begin. But anyway, just for the benefit of our audience, could you uh, let us know uh, where you were born and raised and where you were educated and how you found your way out to San Diego? Sure. I was born and raised in Columbia, Missouri. I lived at home with my parents who had a retail florist shop in the basement. Uh, I then left uh, to go to the West Coast, to Stanford. You, I, you went all through school, though, while living at home, right? You got your B of A and master's at uh, University of Missouri, right? That's right. My okay. mother was a good cook. <laughs> No, it was great. And, we, you know, we had a very close family. And, mm-hmm. and um, I think, you know, Midwest values are really important. Yeah. Uh, they've stayed with me my whole life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I went to Stanford for grad students. Uh, my advisor in general relativity, Black Holes, had just been named two years before. Um, I was working on those. Uh, but then he died of a massive heart attack. And uh, I moved to Texas, got my Ph.D. there, and then on to Princeton, Harvard, Yale, and then spent 20 years at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And that's where I founded uh, the National Center for Supercomputing Application, one of the first NSF supercomputers. But what a career you've had. I mean, you started out. Well, that's interesting. You went to Stanford. Your professor passed away, so you had to leave the school to— Well, they said, you know, you're a smart kid. Uh, you could do— um, condensed matter, or particle physics, and I said, well, general relativity is, is this huge new science field that's taking off, uh, and that's what I'm going to do. And they said, we well, can't do it here because we're not going to be able to replace this guy for a couple of years. And I said, <laughs> well, that's good for you, Stanford. I'm heading to where one of the top centers in the country, and I'll do general relativity. Okay. What was the subject matter of your thesis? Uh, it was to, it was actually, uh, I was the first person to use supercomputers to actually solve Einstein's equations. Mm for the collision <coughs> collision of two black holes and the gravitational radiation that they produce, which 40 years later, as you know, last mm-hmm. year, was finally observed in nature. Right. Oh, my gosh. Wow, so 40 Amazing. years earlier. Yeah. Wow. So let's back up a little bit. You, uh, uh, your, B, your Bachelor's of Arts was in what uh, field? Well, all my degrees are in physics. Okay. <laughs> and um, I was able, 
uh, you know, it's sort of funny because I went to a lab school, University of Missouri Lab School. I was able to take all of the college calculus while I was a high school student. Mm. And so then that let me start taking advanced uh, courses in physics and mathematics. And I basically finished all the undergraduate and graduate courses in physics and math while I was a four-year undergraduate. Now, what inspired you to get into science and physics as a youngster? Did you have a, were your, par- well, your parents obviously were in the floor retail business? Um, but uh, That's two guests in a row, by the way, Joe, whose parents were in the retail flooring business. Years two? No, the guest, the guest last week. Her oh. parents did the same thing. Oh, I didn't. Okay. What are the odds? I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on tonight. Fine. But anyway. <laughs> what are the odds? <laughs> Don't throw me off. Oh, sorry. But um, anyway, yeah. I'm just wondering how you got inspired to get into the field. In, well, as far as I can remember back, and that means into early grade school, I was a scientist. So, I, you know, I had chemistry sets. I made, you know, chemical volcanoes that left stains on the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I made I made my I wound my own Tesla coil and used the Sears Roebuck catalog to get a Model T spark generator oh and was gosh. able to actually wipe out all the radio reception <laughs> in the neighborhood. <laughs> you remind me of this kid Max Logan I've seen online. Uh, he's about uh, twelve or thirteen, and he's got a lab in his basement of his home. Is that the kind of? I was one of those guys. <laughs> but uh, this is like Dexter's laboratory. But I'm just wondering. <laughs> yeah. Were you expo- Was there a, a, a book or a movie that you saw as a youngster? I'm just wondering uh, what drew you to that at such a young age because it's, it's rather unique. Right. Well, it turned out my uncle uh, had gotten his degree, and he died during—he was killed during the war, World War II. Um, I'm born in 48, so mm-hmm. just after the war. And, and so his college textbooks were upstairs in the attic, and they also—real uh, men made their own radios back then. They wound the <laughs> coils and so <laughs> forth, and so— right. I had all these uh, amazing shortwave radios and things like that. My my uh, grandfather was kind of one of these American inventor types, and um, uh, he taught me how to, uh, you know, back then we would uh, make our our own book. We made up, we typed up a book on on the book of information, and it had you know like weights and measures and mm-hmm. a list of the kings of Israel. And, I mean, it had <laughs> you know things you might need. Yeah, and. Uh, <laughs> But he showed me both how to uh, type and make eight copies with carbon paper simultaneously and then how to do bookbinding. Mm. Um, and, and so he had optics, uh, had all these lenses from Edmund Scientific after the war, you know, all the surplus. Uh-huh. So I was just kind of surrounded by this like, you're trying stuff. You were trying to every, put everything in order and try to understand it as something. Well, I mean, you, you know— it, it, what we see today with the make movement where young people are rediscovering the incredible uh, pleasure uh, of, of making things with mm-hmm. their hands, mm-hmm. it's essentially I was an early person in the make movement. So I would put together electronics and chemical stuff and lenses and just experiment, you know. Um, and my father was always, he was one of these guys who would, couldn't just buy something. He had to take it apart and then <laughs> mm-hmm. try to put it back together, mm-hmm. <laughs> which sometimes didn't work out so well. <laughs> but then you got into the future of, of scientific research and supercomputers, which I believe in 1984 or 5, when the first one went in at um, uh, UC San Diego, uh, it was about $14 million, and actually your Apple iPhone has more computing power than that first one, that Cray... Uh, uh, yeah, no, that's exactly right. My when I bought my first Cray two uh, at NCSA, it was fifteen million dollars, and, <laughs> and it had the largest memory of any computer at that time. 
uh, which is smaller than on my Android isn't smartphone. That, isn't that something? Hmm. Isn't that so? How how uh, the technology has progressed? And how big was it physically? Oh my gosh! I mean, we yeah. used to give tours of it. It was one of these beautiful things that Seymour <laughs> Cray made. It had a fountain inside of it. Okay. it had, sorry, you know, you could see it. You know, uh-huh. we had other ones that had love seat on it. And, <laughs> and then, but then it, that was, you know, that was like um, half a room. But then okay. you went down in the basement, and it looked like you were in the in the middle of the of the engine room of the Titanic. There were these <laughs> giant motor generators, and then you go up on the roof, and there were these these amazing fans and oh climate, uh, you know, heat exchangers. And I mean, so really it was a gigantic mm-hmm. machine. Yeah. Amazing. Now the birth of the supercomputer, what can you tell us about that? You must've been at the forefront of that whole. Uh, well, actually, um, you see in this country, uh, in up through actually, uh, when SDSC, the San Diego supercomputer started in 85 and NCSA started in Illinois and a couple of three others. Um, that was the first time that we could, you could get access uh, on a broad basis as a scientist in academia to supercomputers. But I had started all the way back 10 years earlier uh, in 75, 76, and then you had to get a top secret nuclear weapons clearance and go to work in the summer as a physicist at Livermore, Los Alamos, mm-hmm. to get access in the United States to supercomputers. So huh. people forget that that the warriors, you know, from World War II, you know, I mean, 30 years later, after the end of World War II, it was still very uh, strongly influencing uh, how we did things in this country. Amazing. We have to take our little break, though. We're going to come back with Professor Larry Smarr from UCSD, founder of the Cal IT2 Institute there. We'll be back right after this. Hang on. All right, we're getting smart with Larry Smarr. You should put another a T at the end of your name there, Professor. What do you think? Uh, this gentleman here is the Harry Gruber Professor in, Com- in Computer Science and Engineering at UC, uh, UC's Jacob School of Engineering. So how, how, how'd you get there from the Midwest? Well, remember, I actually went to Stanford, Texas, mm-hmm. East Coast, and then back to Illinois, and mm-hmm. I was there for 20 years. Okay. Um, but uh, I had come to San Diego often because of the San Diego Supercomputer Center. Sid Karen, who was the founding director there, was a good friend of mine, and we worked together a lot, was out for conferences. I just never thought they let people come here and live. <laughs> uh, so uh, finally, I decided after having um, started and run the Supercomputer Center at the University of Illinois for 15 years, I wanted to go back to doing uh, research. Um, and so I looked at a number of the universities across the country I'd been at, ended up uh, coming here. But I came here just as Governor Gray Davis uh, had asked President Atkinson, uh, Richard Atkinson of, of uh, the University of California, to invest some of the state surplus that we had in 99 mm-hmm. in some institutes that would continue to work for decades at keeping California's research on the leading edge. Hmm. And that, he knew, was a critical for the economy. Just let me clarify, though, the supercomputers, there's, what, five in the nation right now? There were originally five centers, and then now there are probably three or four, but there's also specialized centers uh, as well. Gotcha. But the NSF, the National Science Foundation, has for 30 years uh, invested in providing the continually leading-edge, high-performance computing resources Mm -hmm. to 
all of our research scientists and all the universities in the country. Wow. And you don't pay to get access. You have to have the best idea. Mm-hmm. Ah, and so there's, there, you, you set up a proposal, send it in, and then they choose the best ideas across all fields of science, engineering, so, social science, humanities. Wow. Yeah. It's so, just, so did you pick UCSD or did UCSD pick you? A little of both. A little of both. Okay. Um, our kids had both graduated and came to the West Coast. Mm. Uh, as undergraduates, and so uh, they were going to uh, undergraduate school, one at Stanford and one at UC Santa Cruz. So in a way, they said, Mom and Dad, how come you're still in the Midwest? Mm -hmm. Why don't you come out to California? That's where the future is. Yeah, so 17 years ago, you founded the California Institute for Telecommunications and Information Technology, and I know Dr. Erwin Jacobs was probably a big part of that as well. What were you first tasked with? What uh, What was the idea behind the whole center? Yeah, well, Irwin was uh, incredibly important because to get the $100 million from the state to build the buildings, one at San- UC San Diego, one at UC Irvine, that are the part, the two campuses for mm-hmm. our institute, you had to get a two-to-one match from not state funds. So you had to get industry money, federal money, and Irwin really st- uh, stepped up, and, and Qualcomm, of course, was a, a major partner. Mm-hmm. But then he sort of challenged uh, the San Diego uh, companies to get on board with this. Mm-hmm. Um, because what we are is, is, is a kind of almost you know, a, a, like a United Nations. We have all 24 departments on campus that involve themselves with this and cross-disciplinary projects. Mm. Often, you know, this is where the federal funding has been going. Uh, you know, mm. it's still... Pr- you know, of course, uh, supports individual investigators, but more and more to uh, really attack the real-world problems, the big challenges for our society, you need a lot of different experts. And so we're the place where we sort of glue those people together and then have some of the most advanced uh, facilities, nanotechnology facilities, photonics, wireless, uh, virtual reality. Wow, it's multidiscipline <laughs> on steroids, wouldn't you say? Yes, sir. <laughs> Amazing. So uh, we'll get into your, your, your whole uh, journey into your intestine in a little bit because that's in, in, your, me- in the, your medical uh, issues because it, it, it's a very big part of your, your whole uh, process, right? I mean, and it's, it's amazing. But the, um, the Optiputer and the Lambda, all these things that you're a principal investigator for, can you tell us a little bit about that? Right. So uh, fundamentally, when uh, you use the Internet, the backplane across the country is over fiber optics. And these uh, have, and that's the way it's been for many years now. Uh, so what we have always tried to do is to stay at the leading edge of what the Internet could do, uh, bringing in new capabilities. Like, for instance, it's the NCSA, NCSA Mosaic, that Mark Andreessen and Eric Bina developed, uh, became the first uh, widely used web browser, and 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 our web server became mm-hmm. the most widely used web server. Uh, but the optical networks, uh, I realized, uh, you you know, you could actually get up to a hundred to a thousand times the bandwidth for say investigators using big data mm. um, uh, than the commodity internet. So, you know, I mean, after all, that's the way transportation works. Yeah. We have interstate highway systems, but we also have Route 66. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and the whole long-haul trucking mm-hmm. uh, industry took off once the interstate highway system was in place that mm-hmm. President Eisenhower mm-hmm. put there. Uh, so we've always had multi-tiers of, of infrastructure, and I realized you could do the same with optical fibers, 
And so the Optiputer Project, the PRISM Project, Quartzite Project, now the Pacific Research Platform, are all National Science Foundation uh, funded. You have to, of course, have you know peer review, and mm-hmm. they have to decide you've got the best idea. But uh, this is uh, putting, for instance, right now, all of the West Coast research universities on a superhighway for big data that's 100 to 1,000 times faster than the standard Internet you're using. Mm. Wow. Now it takes 30 minutes to get a signal from Earth to Mars because we have rovers up there. I saw mm-hmm. this the other day. Uh, maybe someday you, this technology will help increase the speed of, of, uh, of that transmission, perhaps? Well, uh, you know, uh, as Einstein said, uh, the speed of light is the top speed, and that's the law. <laughs> so, so we're not going to be going faster than the speed so of light. So that's 186,000 what miles per second. second. Miles yeah. per second. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and so the time delay to Mars is entirely due to the speed of light. Mm-hmm. But if you think about it in Southern California, uh, you know, light goes around the planet Earth seven times in a second, just to give an idea of the speed. Gotcha. So there's really very little uh, uh, difficulty in in California. But what these do. You know, think about infrastructure. The, think the entire U.S. economy grew for the last uh, 60 or 70 years off the investment we made in the interstate highway system. Mm-hmm. All these things came into being. I mean, there wouldn't be McDonald's. There wouldn't be, you know, trucking. There wouldn't be all of these things that we take for granted. And, and so every generation has to think about these new infrastructure investments. Mm-hmm. But the same is the true for the scientific researcher who are trying to live, say, 10 years in the future. And so what I've tried to always do is live in the future, create things based on the exponentials of the underlying technology, and then report back. Mm -hmm. And that gives these legal and regulatory and other slower uh, parts of our society a chance to understand, wow, this is going to really change everything. Yeah. The Golden Goose Award that you received in 2014, was that in reference to your black hole research and the supercomputing, right? Um, Yeah, the the Golden Goose Award, most people probably haven't heard about it, but But many of the scientific societies and members of Congress decided (laughs) um, since basic research often is easy to make fun of until you realize, uh, wow, it just completely all of a sudden changed everything Mm -hmm. about the world. So that's what this award is. So my first NSF grant in 1979, almost 40 years ago, was on, you know, the head-on collision of two black holes on a computer. And, and, and you might think, okay, what, what in the <laughs> world, who cares? But that led me to understand the power of computational science. That led me to write the proposal to the NSF, to the first one in the nation, to set up the National Supercomputer Centers. Um, and then uh, that uh, led to uh, most, well, for instance, we actually turned on corporate America to supercomputing. Mm-hmm and got many of the industries that were not using advanced computing to use it. Well, that gave a huge competitive boost to the economy. There you go. Um, anyway, let's see. Uh, I know that you, you were about 10 years at, um, at Cal-IT2, then you were, had some medical issues, right, mm-hmm. and which weren't self-evident at first because it was intestinal. Um, but what, what compelled you to uh, start pursuing the, the medical application to your own body? Well, so from the very beginning, when we looked at what activities, what part of our society were going to be transformed by the digital revolution, 
we saw medicine as being one of the most important uh, areas. And so for 17 years, since we were founded in 2000, CalIT2 has talked about digitally enabled genomic medicine, mm. which is just now coming into being. Sure. So people now have Fitbits and, and they, they you know, track uh, uh, not just their steps and everything, but their heart rate and all kinds of well, blood sugar, that's blood about sugar, to happen. Yeah. Absolutely, all, very important. All coming online. Yep. But, but interestingly, most people have huge amounts of data about themselves medically, but very little of it actually gets used. Yeah, but we're going to have to save yeah, that. We've got a break uh, yeah, we've got a break coming up. When we come back, we're going to get into the, the health journey of Dr. Smar and uh, how it all applies to supercomputing right after this. Hang on. All right, we're back with the award-winning It's Your Money and Your Life, and this is the time where Richard and I like to thank our sponsors, and premier among them is ABC Family Law with Sharon Blanchet, Lisa Christensen, and all the great women down there working in the field for many, many years with great success. Richard has more. As well, we've got UBS with Michael Caronta. Could not do this show without UBS. Also, our favorite CPAs on the planet. We actually have two groups of them, more traditional CPAs, Polito Epic up in San Marcos, tax returns, financial statements. And then, if you want a little bit more specialization, how about Signature Analytics with Jason Kruger, a niche market CFO service firm, helping growing companies who need a CFO temporarily or on a part-time basis with offices all across the Western region. Also, our great friend Joel Grushkin with Cost Segregation Initiatives, helping real estate owners improve their cash flow. Sean Puckett, our great friend, of course, is the VP at Mechanics Bank, formerly known as California Republic Bank, a great Bank here in San Diego, originally out of Orange County. Sean is the VP for the San Diego region out of UTC. And that bank serves wealthy families and families that specialize in the real estate business. Also, my dear friend, Tony Lombardi, who heads up the LG Experience in the Lombardi Group, helping wealth advisors make heroes out of CPAs to the CPA's very best clients. Also, they have a continuing education qualified event coming up for three days in the middle of June at La Costa. So check out the LG Experience. Paul Hines, who I just saw at Brenda Geiger's continuing education event, is a great sponsor as well. Paul is the head of Hearthstone Private Wealth Management, as well as the catalyst behind senior and SeniorSafeAndSound.org, the initiative here in San Diego to help prevent financial abuse of the elderly. I mentioned briefly Brenda Geiger. Her continuing education event went great. Brenda is an attorney who specializes in asset protection and estate planning. Also, Malin Burnham Award finalist, Michelle St. Clair, with Elite Lifestyle Management, helping people get back their most precious asset, which is time. Nobody has time anymore. So Elite Lifestyle Management will help you get time back by doing all kinds of things for you, from the simple, like travel arrangements, to very complicated things. Um, just use your imagination. They can handle anything on the planet that needs to get done. Now, those of you who are skipping dinner to listen to this show, you might be getting hungry. We'll help you there too, right, Joe? Absolutely. There's the Very Good Food Foundation headed up by Michelle Ciccarelli Lirac, and who has a very good dinner, very good night dinner coming up in September this year. And also, uh, Lestat's Coffee Houses, University Heights, Normal Heights, and the new one on University Avenue, all open 24 7, 365, with many researchers and scientists in there a, a lot of the times because they, they're open all night long. And they keep uh, odd hours. Yes. And. Um, I know many of these sponsors have been working with Richard for many, many years with great success, correct? be more accurate to say many decades. Yeah. It's three. It's a long time. <laughs> yeah. 
And if you get over to our website, iwaymoney.com, there is a sponsor tab, and you can ha- there's a drop-down menu there. You can learn all about them, some or all of them, and uh, everything is right there. Anyway, let's get back to Larry Smar here because his journey was fascinating. Um, he had some health issues about, what, six years ago, Larry, was it? Well, actually, it goes back to 2008, so okay. it's almost nine years ago. Okay. And um, tell us what happened. I mean, you involved your doctors now uh, with your personal data that you wanted to investigate yourself. You became your own patient, I guess, to some extent. Or Well, actually, you know, as a scientist and an astrophysicist, um, I'm used to uh, having to look in the sky with radio telescopes or ob- uh, optical telescopes and, and basically see how things change over time. Mm-hmm. And then from that, you have to derive well, is this a quasar or is it a, is it a rotating neutron star or whatever? So when I began to think about my body, I realized it was a, you know, dynamic multi-component system. And wouldn't the rational thing be to look at variables over time? And of course, like anybody else, I was going to the doctor, I would get blood tests and so forth. Never thought much about it. But then I started collecting them and I noticed that at least one of my variables, which is how inflamed your body is, was five times greater than the upper limit for healthy. And then now, how did you discover that? Because you you were feeling okay, right? Yeah, I was fine. But I just looked at the numbers, and I would go online and uh, use the web, you know, Mister mm-hmm. Google. So, which component were you looking at? Some protein in your blood, or what? Yeah, li- oh. yeah I was going to say by inflamed. What do you mean by yeah. inflamed? Complex reactive protein, okay. CRP, CRP okay. is the generic uh, way that you measure. Uh, whether or not you have inflammation. Now, mm-hmm. Normally, its half-life is like 18 hours. Okay. And so it, you know, it, it spikes, it, it sort of communicates to the rest of the mm-hmm. white blood cells and everything else, hey, there's something going on. Um, but this went on for years, from 2005, 2006, 2007. I was going from 5 to 10 to 15, wow. which is, you know, compared to 1, right. that's pretty high. And I would go in with, I, and of course, I naturally, as a scientist, I graphed all this stuff up, and oh. I would take it into my to my doctor and say, <laughs> "Look, something terrible is going on inside of me." And he said, "Well, um, how do you feel? How do you feel?" <laughs> you know? And I said, "Well, what does that matter? I've got data." And he yeah. says, "Yeah, but I'm a doctor." The and numbers, the numbers. So you you're know, supposed to say, "I feel lousy. Help me." <laughs> well, I wasn't though, and I, know. I could tell. See, the idea, unfortunately, in our country, we have developed a sick care system. Right. You only use it once you become sick. The idea of instead tracking your, your development over time and catching things very early and correcting them mm-hmm. before you get chronically ill is the future. The preventive part of it, but right? Was that the only statistical aberration? Or yes. It, okay. But I'm wondering what drew you to the, the protein? I mean, did you just doing research? What, why? It's real simple. You get that piece of paper back from the doctor. Yeah, it's one of the standard reports. That's so. got, that's got a, a, you know, like 16 different right. things oh, they did right. in your blood. Your blood work. And, blood and, work. And, and I went, fine, 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 fine. I got down, whoa, five times upper limit for healthy. Well, why didn't the what? doctor notice that? I'm just They surprised. did. Oh, and okay. They, and, they, and they said, well, you know, everybody has their own, uh, you know, value. Yeah. You just must run a little high. Oh. And, and with one value, you couldn't tell anything. But right. what it's I was saying is it wasn't just high at five, but then it went up to 10 and then up to 15. Yeah. And then within two weeks, uh, I had the worst pain in my lower abdo- abdomen that I've <sighs> ever had in my life. Yeah. 
And I went back to the doctor and I said, oh, you're going to love this. <laughs> <laughs> I have a symptom. <laughs> uh, so now they've got, and now so, they got to, went to work. Huh? So, so we said, oh, well, you just need some antibiotics. And so we did 10 days of antibiotics. And sure enough, it dropped from 15 back to 5. And he said, so, see, isn't that great? Works. And I said, no, no, it's not under 1. It's still at 5. And then over time, by 2000, uh, end of 2011, it was 27. Whoa. Uh. So in the meantime, I had realized that I could go online and get uh, kits that would, uh, you know, just go down to LabCorp, Quest, give them your arm, they take some blood, mm-hmm. and, and you can get lots of numbers. But they also had stool tests. And so I actually uh, said, well, that's weird. What, what's that going to do? And I looked at the things you could measure, and they were different than what were in the blood. So I said, well, cool, more numbers. That's the scientist part. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and so, but then by 2011, I was horrified that one of those, uh, which is part of your immune system, was 125 times higher than the upper limit for healthy. Wow. And I was fortunately at University of California, San Diego, so I could go into the, the library, provides access, free access to the scientific literature, and I could look up this particular uh, called lactoferrin. And, um, that turns out that's the specific and sensitive indicator that you have inflammatory bowel disease and autoimmune disease. Which is, uh, we, we know is Crohn's disease. Crohn's disease. Crohn's is right. one of the ones, ulcerative colitis is the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, um, take it from there. I mean, what did you, did you, you got, you put your medical team together then. Your, yeah, doc, well, your doctor was engaged at this point, right? I actually switched to UCSD Health at that point because mm. they had successfully recruited uh, Dr. Bill Sanborn from 20 years at the Mayo Clinic, and he became the head of GI, and mm. he, I had done independent research, and I knew he was uh, one of the best uh, clinical researchers in uh, inflammatory bowel disease, IBD, in the country, uh, and so I Basically, Cole called him and said, hey, uh, you don't know me, but uh, <laughs> I need to be your patient, but you also need to be my doctor. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and so we've had a wonderful collaboration now for uh, the last uh, six years at least. And indeed, we ended up not only has he helped me um, in terms of the disease, but we've ended up uh, publishing scientific articles on my body's data that I generate because essentially I've turned my body into an observatory mm-hmm. so so that we can actually observe these dynamic processes in the blood, in the immune system, and in the microbiome. So you continue to monitor your body that way? Absolutely. Okay. I took a stool sample and froze it this morning. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We're going to get into the 100 trillion it's good time for a break. My, <laughs> microbiome cells. Uh, folks, we'll be right back with Professor Larry Smarr right after this. Hang on. All right, we're back. We're on the investigative trail. We're journey to the center of Professor Smar's colon. How do you like that? It's no semicolon. <laughs> it's a colon. So, Larry, tell us what happened. I mean, you got uh, the whole supercomputer involved, billions and billions and trillions of, of cells and data to digest, for lack of a better term. Um, tell us, tell us the, how it went. So I uh, had actually been uh, gotten a big grant from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation to build up a supercomputer to support the environmental microbiome. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, it's hard to believe because we think we know what life on this planet is. But actually, as an astronomer, I can tell you, if you look at it, a galaxy, it's 100 billion stars. And there are 100 billion of those galaxies, each with 100 billion mm-hmm. stars. Mm. That's a big number. 
Yeah. But there are 100 million times as many as that microbial cells on this planet Earth. So most life on this planet is invisible. And that goes in terms of your body. If you take the cells in your body that have DNA, 10 times as many as human cells are in the microbes on your skin, in your mouth, in your gut, as there are human cells. We're mostly bacteria, right? You are, by cell count, (laughs) for sure. And it's worse than that, because if you ask, what about the genes on the DNA, the things that make proteins, 99% of the genes on the DNA in your body are in non-human cells, the microbes. Oh, my gosh. Wow. So, uh, okay, I won't say it, but as far as... um I might have 200 trillion cells in my microbiome. Who knows on, <laughs> on a good day? But that, that is amazing. And then, of course, this whole antibiotic, uh, at the end of your lecture, uh, you, you, you mentioned one book where uh, maybe antibiotics is not the best way to, to go on, on a lot of uh, illness. Well, antibiotics are a wonderful discovery, but they need to be husbanded and only used when it's appropriate. Uh, we, in the United States, 80% of the antibiotics are used to fatten farm animals. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and we overprescribe antibiotics compared to other countries like Scandinavia by a large measure. Mm-hmm. Uh, in many cases, it's not the doctor's fault. It's, it's that there's a misinformation out there, and so parents will, you know, they see their kid is getting sick. They'll go and demand antibiotics. If it's virus, the antibiotics isn't going to do anything. Right. So, uh, other than build up this superbug that uh, that's uh, probably yes. out there now. Yes, yes, it drives antibiotic resistance every mm-hmm. time we overuse them. Mm-hmm. But the main problem is that uh, you do have uh, thirty or forty trillion microbes in your gut, and if you take oral antibiotics for maybe a really good reason medically, you end up. Uh, really destroying a lot of those microbes. And most of the microbes, almost all the microbes in your body are providing you with essential services that your human body can't do. So if you had lettuce today, it turns out your human cells do not have the capability to make an enzyme to digest the plant fiber. It's the bugs that actually ferment it, and the fermenting process produces the most important energy source for the cells that line your human colon. So Hmm. we're very uh, synergetic. And if you damage those, the ecological services that the microbiome would otherwise provide is no longer there, and you may very well develop a disease. Yeah. Now, I'm a big fan of apple cider vinegar and kefir and and maybe kombucha, too. These fermented drinks, those are pretty good for us, aren't they? They're very important. In fact, uh, uh, you know, here in... We're fortunate here in San Diego that we're one of the health-conscious centers of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, certainly fermented foods are, are very important. Uh, a, a base to your diet of as many kinds of vegetables and plants as you can get is also essential for health. Gotcha. So, so, so anyhow, you went on to have surgery in a way that might be described as atypical? Yes. <laughs> is that correct? Well, Tell I, us about that, I continued to track, uh, and Dr. Sanborn had done, a, uh, as, like I say, had done a great job, but, but I could tell also by using uh, MRIs of my abdomen, um, whenever they would, uh, I would have an MRI, I would get out of the tube and say, please give me the data mm-hmm. on a CD, bring it back to CalIT2, give it to my virtual reality experts, and they would create a three-dimensional transparent Larry. And then I would put that in our virtual reality room, and I've had hundreds of people that I've given tours of the inside of my body. 
It's uh, a big wall. How tell us the, the dimensions of it. How many screens and it's uh, well, huge. Yeah, so we have both uh, rooms that are uh, <laughs> virtual reality, and then we have the the great wall, which is thirty two <laughs> times the resolution of your high definition TV at home. Wow! <laughs> and you ha- and it's uh it's several TVs put together. It's like right? an entire wall of a big room. So it's yeah. how many feet by how many feet? Would you a say? lot. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is that that I could tell by looking at the most patients aren't able to actually look inside their body mm-hmm. uh, using virtual reality from uh, MRIs uh, or CAT scans, but I could, and I could see that there was this kink in a part of my uh, lower colon that was getting tighter and tighter. And by um, last September in uh, 2016, I could tell it was down to about, the opening in my colon was down to about four millimeters. Yeah. So if you try to imagine pushing right. all the stuff through, yeah. and it was because, imagine you had a garden hose and you pulled yeah, on it. Twisting. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly yeah. what happened. Things were backing up. So I realized I was going to have to have a, what is typical for people with IBD is a resection mm-hmm. of about eight inches of my colon to take the knotted part out. I went to um, Sanborn. He said, okay, we can consider this. You should go see Dr. Sonia Ramamorthy, who is a nationally known uh, surgeon, but she uses the da Vinci robots as a surgical Mm -hmm. uh, 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 help to uh, do this kind of thing. Well, you know, she's a wonderful, wonderful doctor, but I realized she knows nothing about the inside of my body, and I've been giving tours on it for four <laughs> years. So I said, Doctor, you have to come over to my virtual reality studio and get to know the inside me. <laughs> did, did, she, um, did she look at you sort of funny? She, no. she is so wonderful. Good. She is she is one of the new guard, new vanguard of mm-hmm. doctors who understand the technological revolution is going to be their future, and, and they want to be early and mm-hmm. be mm-hmm. adopters of it. Sure. So she came over. We went into the cave. I had a, uh, my colon in 3D about six <laughs> foot tall. You walked through your colon. <laughs> oh, yeah. She said, she said, oh, my goodness, I am inside Larry Smar's colon. <laughs> I, and uh, uh, this apparently was a first time for her. And uh, <laughs> uh, sort of intimate. You don't charge? Yeah, it was really nice. Uh, but the point was, honestly, we sat there as patient and doctor and figured out where to make cut A and mm-hmm. cut B for the place where she was going to cut to resect this. She so loved, fell in love with what the 3D transparent, think of it a Google map for the inside mm-hmm. of your body, uh-huh. that she took Jurgen Schultz, my, my virtual reality uh, expert, and, and drafted him three days before the operation. You're going to be in the room, and you're going to bring your laptop, mm. and we're going to be able to show everybody. You're going to turn it around, so we, we'll, get the, we'll see the transparent Larry in the mm-hmm. in the orientation that we're actually were working they, with the robot, they were webcasting you or what? No, well, they no. didn't quite webcast me, but they did. Uh, the UCSD Health knew this was a first, and uh-huh. so they sent a, a full uh, camera crew into the operating room for wow. the five-hour surgery. Wow! wow. Uh, but here, the the point is, she had never done a 3D pre-surgical planning, and yet. I asked her, I said, what do your, your kids use computer graphics or anything? Oh, yeah, yeah, they have, you know, an Xbox. And I said, well, that's more than you need to do this in the operating room. Hmm. So I, why isn't it there? And I know you had made a 3D um, uh, printout of your colon, and we're passing around an audience. Uh, yes. Uh, well, one of the things, you know, the body, the abdomen in particular is, is, is full of all kinds of organs, and it's, and, and it's kind of hard to visualize in 3D. But because of 3D printing, I realized I could take uh, the uh, couple of feet of the colon that were the problematic one and just send it to the 3D printer from my 3D 
uh, virtual reality model, and mm-hmm. then and then once you have it in your hands, everything's clear. I mean, you you get exactly why you're going to have to have the surgery, mm-hmm. and so I think it's very important for the patient uh, to be able to see for themselves what's wrong. Mm-hmm talk with the doctor about what the plan is. I can imagine this is going to help heart surgery, all kinds of surgeries, right? Uh, is but, it, but the more esoteric stuff, particularly. Yeah. Like yeah, what you, well, what you it, had wasn't obvious. No, and it turns out that, that, that two areas, the brain surgery and some parts of cardiovascular mm-hmm. surgery, are already using this. Right. And that's why I knew it would work. But the abdomen is, is uh, actually, it's what my surgeon, Sonia Ramamorthy, calls the high-rent district. You know, that's where your, your aorta comes mm-hmm. and splits yeah. to the arteries going down your legs. Right. That's, that's, you know, you've got your, your spleen at the top, your bladder at the bottom, your urethras. You don't want to cut or nick any of those things. You've got 100, and, 100 million neurons. <laughs> yeah, when they say a way to a person's heart through the stomach, it's also the brain and, and probably a lot of other it's organs. It's your second but, brain. But I th- Larry, can you stick around for a bonus track and for a few more hey, minutes? Hey, quick question, though. Your yeah. score of one that went to 25, that went to 57, what is it now? Uh, it's uh, now under one. Good. Anyway, uh, we're going to take a uh, little. Cool. Uh, we're going to have a bonus track. Uh, f- uh, we're going to follow up on some of the startups and, and uh, other information with Larry Smar. Uh, so uh, get on the website iowamoney.com for that. Richard, great seeing you. Justin Hart, our board operator. Thanks for making it sound terrific. Thanks to Craig, uh, Craig uh, Blanky, and Dave Sniff here at KFMB. All these podcasts are commercial free on iowamoney.com. See you next time.